0: Chibs. My name is Alex and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast, but listening more specifically to a limited series I'm producing for the month of October in which I will take wild abandon in talking to you about one of my favorite things in the world, which is the genre of horror. Horror movies, horror novels, horror TV shows, all of this and more will be discussed from these haunted hallways of Little Havana in a series that I'll be calling Epoque Conversations. I'm not going to lean too hard on scripting these things. I'm In fact, for most of them, I'm not going to script anything at all. I'm just going to riff, which will be therapeutic and constructive, I think, because I just finished writing, and then, well, that was the one thing, writing and then typing up the novel that I've been working on for a few months. But now that the book is done and off my desk for a little while, I want to spend my time just immersing myself in novels and movies and shows and shit like that. I want to focus on creative input, because while working on the novel, I probably read more shit than i've ever read in my fucking life at least in like in one concentrated period i was reading for hours at a time every day but all the stuff that i was taking in was like biographies and histories and stuff it was it was meant to inform the creative thing that i was making i was reading books that were written very much with an eye toward entertaining the reader but what they prioritized above entertaining the reader i think was educating the reader and so it'll be cool to become the recipient again of invented stories. To walk these halls and reacquaint myself with the stuff that I've always loved. The stories, the horror stuff thats that has always influenced me and shaped so much of my imaginative landscape. There's a part early in in Paradise Lost when Satan and all of his minions fall into hell for the first time and Milton refers to hell as an unhappy mansion. And that's, I feel like that's a fucking perfect phrase for like, I don't know, my imaginative headspace. I'm very happy to be in there, but the images that recur are, you know, they come from the horror movies in which I sort of, saturated myself when I was a kid. And that's another thing I wanna re-explore kind of is is like my childhood. Not in like a Freudian sort of psychoanalytic way that I'm gonna, I'm just gonna dump stories from, from what it was like to grow up in Pinecrest, but I'm lately feeling like a weird relationship with my very young self as I remember that kid because I'm taking account lately of how much time I spend by myself and the sorts of media that I consume now, the sorts of media that I consumed at a formative age and that now recurs in, in the sort of stories that I try to tell. And it's, it's been, I've been kind of captivated to think about my younger self, who was always, who was just as isolated as I am now, reading these very graphic books as a kid, watching these incredibly violent, disturbing horror movies and taking a kind of solace in them and feeling somewhat cozy toward figures like Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees, and also, and more specifically, cozy with their creators. Like, once the internet was the kind of place where you could easily do this kind of thing, which I, I guess was hap- that it happened when I was like in late middle school, early high school, I would binge interviews with Rob Zombie and Eli Roth and John Carpenter and Stephen King and George Romero. I actually got to interview George Romero. I may have told you this story. When I interviewed George Romero when I was 19. Have I told I'll, so Let me tell you the story. So George Romero was doing publicity for what I think turned out to be his final feature, which was Survival of the Dead. And I think it was the seventh installment in his zombie franchise, and I liked the movie. And I remember, like, I was 19, and I was writing for the San Francisco Examiner's website. I was, like, their zombie movie correspondent because there was that huge zombie craze going on um, in, like... 2008, 9, 10. And the the movie Survival of the Dead was being released by Magnet, which is um, a a subsidiary, I think, of Magnolia Pictures. And so I got in touch with the people there, and they were like, okay, Mr. Romero is going to call you sometime between, like, Tuesday morning and Thursday morning. So it was summertime. So I literally, I sat in my dad's office at home, and I just sat by the phone for two days and of course he called me toward the end of the second day and um and we talked i asked stupid questions stupid you know highbrow verbose questions about a, mo- a, a movie a creative project toward which i imagined he had the very lightest touch like very light like he wasn't thinking that it was a heavy movie but i remember like i had just read that he had gotten divorced of his from his wife of like 50 years and i remember really wanting to ask him what that what it was like to get divorced in one's 70s but i was like no fucking way am i gonna ask that question and i wonder like if he's dead now but if i was to interview him today would i have asked would i ask that question i think like if we had an hour-long conversation and after maybe 40 minutes we really got like there was momentum and he was divulging things and he was telling stories and laughing i think i then might have ventured to be like hey so Speaking of horrifying things, I heard that in your eighth decade you just walked away from your wife. What was that like? I haven't gone back and looked at Survival of the Dead since we did that interview, but I remember getting a sense that I was speaking to, like, this titan of horror movies, this guy who had fucking changed the game when he made Night of the Living Dead. And part of the reason Night of the Living Dead was so influential is because, for one thing, it was made on a shoestring budget. It was incredibly graphic, because I think it was rated X. Also... George Romero fucked up and, like, did not copyright the movie. So it, like, immediately lapsed into the public domain. And once it was in the public domain, people, like, every movie theater in the country was like, all right, fuck it, we've got nothing interesting to show. Let's show Night of the Living Dead because we don't have to pay anyone. We can just pocket all of that money. And I remember I first saw Night of the Living Dead because I bought, like, a $7 VHS tape of it at Party City. Party City, oh, maybe they still do. I just don't have one in my area. They used to go fucking ham for... Halloween and they would have a shelf of VHS tapes that were in a weird kind of cheap Shrink wrap and it was always like dinosaurus Arama 3 and I, you know, all, like long down-the-line sequels of movies I imagine it was shit that was mostly in the public domain and then I saw a very shitty cover it, You know in a cheap version of night of the living dead So I took it home and I watched it and it didn't scare me But I remember I think I was like 13 or maybe 12 I remember watching it alone in my bedroom and pretending to be scared. I think that because I had read so much about it on horror movie forums and shit and how it was like this revelatory thing when it came out in the 60s and it was super political and I you know just because it had been historically significant and because I had heard people like John Carpenter and Stephen King rhapsodize about it people who I considered to be like the highest brow of intellectuals I thought that I was demonstrating some kind of cultural refinement if I could actually find myself frightened by this movie and I would do the same thing when I was like trying to read Dracula at the age of 12 which I only read half of I was not smart enough to read like it went way over my head and that was another thing that always made me feel insecure because I would read these interviews and watch these interviews with these with these horror filmmakers and horror novelists, and they were all like oh I remember when I was 12 when I was 13 and I read Dracula and it scared the pants off me Stephen King in particular talks about it in his memoir how he read Dracula at like the age of 10 and it scared the shit out of him and he thought he was like a fucking masterpiece and he wanted to emulate it and ultimately did. When he wrote Salem's Lot, his second novel. Although another thing to keep in mind when referring to Stephen King's books is like his first book or his second or his third, and it's one of the things I'm always trying to remind myself because it makes me feel a little bit better about my own situation, is that he wrote four full-length novels before what we call his first novel, Carrie, was ever published. And then he went on to write, over the course of his career, he wrote so he published several books under the name Richard Bachman. He did that until some enterprising big fan read the book Thriller and went to the Library of Congress and found that it was like patented. I would you would trademarked, I guess under the name Stephen King. But anyways, those first four novels that he wrote and that were uniformly rejected by agents, one of which, called Rage, is the only Stephen King book which is still out of print, and it is out of print because Stephen King has, like, withdrawn it from publication. I think it's safe to guess that it is the first novel about a school shooting, and it kind of, like, it, it follows and I guess somewhat ennobles the, the angsty young man who gets so fed up with his mistreatment at school that he brings a gun and kills a few people. And the thing that had most... That had that really bothered Stephen King to the point that he withdrew it from publication is that there then were several school shootings. Not like the mass school shootings like Columbine, which sort of inducted the 21st century of mass shootings. And it's so weird to have to not speak flippantly about it, but like contextualize the term school shoot. Like, uh, to, to feel as though the act of a teenager taking a handgun to school and murdering three people isn't severe enough to to get the war, the phrase school shooting. Because like a school shooting, our conception of it now in the 21st century, it means a mass murder. And a mass murder, by definition, is one in which four people died apart from the killer. So if a, a person goes into a building or something and kills three people, and then kills himself, that's not considered a mass murder. Anyways, yes, Stephen King emulated, did his own version of Dracula with his second published novel, Salem's Lot. I remember always coming across those references and being like, am I fucking, is there a malfunction in, like just, I was convinced, yes, there was a malfunction in me that I couldn't wrap my head around these things that all these other guys were reading at such an early age. But now I'm more inclined to think that they were simply lying. Maybe not Stephen King, because I think he was a naturally precocious reader, he did so much of it. Or maybe it was the case that these guys who grew up, you know, in the fucking 40s and 50s, they just had, I don't know, they were made of sturdier stuff when it came to reading at a young age. Anyways, I remember I was speaking to George Romero, and I was like, "Oh, this is a fucking titan of horror cinema." Rather than feeling like humbled myself so much, I mean, I, I made, basically just felt shame. I always felt shame, but rather than that kind of humility at speaking to such an influential artist, I felt kind of self-conscious about like how humbling it must have been for him to have to have, to be in a situation at that point in his career where he had to give interviews to, like, shithead 19-year-olds. And I'd always felt kind of isolated in my horror fandom. Like, it was the kind of, if you were big into horror movies and big into, you know, horror novels, if you found your camaraderie on message boards and in chat rooms. Like, it wasn't really something, people in my class were not that interested in watching Night of the Living Dead or Dawn of the Dead. So I always felt kind of isolated in my consumption of horror stuff, and then I felt a little more isolated to be like, look, even the fucking heavy hitters, even the really influential creators of this shit are relegated in their twilight years to scrounging for a budget. And, you know, if they wanna make a movie, they it has to, you know, touch upon, it has to be another installment in the series that they started 40 years ago, a series with which he probably wanted nothing to do. Or maybe he did, I don't know. Anyways, that's the story of when I interviewed George Romero. I've just finished writing this book. By the way, I say this sincerely, please forgive the frequency with which I will be mentioning that book. Over the next few weeks, I'm super close to it at the moment, obviously, because I just finished it. And I'm about to go into a pretty rigorous editing process. And I think, I I know, that in this book, there's a lot of shit on the page that's very fresh to me. And it's like the embryonic depiction of something that's going on inside me. I feel some kind of change happening in in my head. Like a a kind of second puberty. I think it's probably, maybe it's just superficial and it's influenced by, you know, the self-imposed significance of turning 30. But I I don't know, I dread the idea that all these references to the book that I wrote are going to seem like some kind of humble brag, because believe me, I've got no grounds for thinking of this novel as like a basis for bragging. This is the sixth novel that I've written, and most likely, and I don't say this cynically, but I, my my projection of what's going to happen is it's going to get the warmest rejection of any book that I've I've put out there. I think a lot of agents will say, hey, can I read more pages? Can you send me the whole manuscript? And then they're gonna get back to me saying, hey, there's some good stuff here. I don't think I can really sell it, but please keep me in mind. I think I'm gonna get some of that. I guess that's as optimistic as I am here, but I do feel obliged to go through the motions because I know there is a chance maybe the best thing will happen, who knows. But I apologize in advance if it becomes obnoxious to hear like unending reference to something about which I will be I will be disclosing very little because I kind of feel like I'm stomping in here every day, like, oh, Brandon. Brandon keeps fucking my shit up, Brandon is the bane of my existence, and meanwhile I never tell you who the fuck Brandon is, or like how I know him, or what what he's doing to me exactly. Another thing that makes me, like, keen on horror and sensitive to it is this feeling that it is, it's like a safe space for the lonesome viewer. In the same way that we might look at at fantasy and science fiction, and you would say, you would say... You would say of the fandom that is compelled toward other worlds and stuff that that is, uh, it it feels like a generalization, but you might say that those readers, those viewers, the ones who respond most passionately to those other worlds are the people who either don't, they feel that they don't fit in in this world, or they feel so smothered, so relentlessly smothered in the realities of this world that they they desperately want to escape it. And so they flee into these sort of fantastical alternatives. And it seems to me that horror, similarly, with all of its violence and its nihilism and especially in cinema, its like cheeky celebration of shock and violence and nihilism, I think the genre is a a bit of a rebuke to the world of manners in which we live the world that judges you on the basis of your appearance the world that shows no sympathy to your feelings when it when it's confronting you with like the existential realities of the bills that need paying or the traffic that you're going to be stuck in or the family dinner that you have to attend even though you don't you don't fit in there i think most of horror especially cinematic horror manifests the sensibility of of a storyteller of a storyteller like looking at the at the at the world in which we live at the mercilessly like, straight-laced and polite and politic daily world, and and presenting it with images saying, look, look at what is going to happen to you, look at what can happen to you, death and destruction and nudity, kind of in the same way that there's, like, a thriving BDSM sex dungeon business in New York City, like, these sex dungeons in Manhattan where Wall Street traders these billionaires, they go into this dungeon and they put on a diaper and they get in a cage and they pay exorbitant sums so that they can be spanked and denigrated. And what they seem to be doing there, and this is like obviously a very simplistic kind of armchair psychologist assessment of what's going on there, but it seems like they're trying to to relinquish the smothering responsibility of their daily life. The, the smothering responsibility of feeling like, okay, I, I operate this hedge fund, and so any decision that I make, there are billions of dollars at stake, and many people might lose their life savings if I fuck this up. They go and they do some dramatic relinquishing of responsibility by basically regressing back to infancy in this little sex dungeon, and then they can walk out, and they've purged all those feelings very quickly, and they can go about their day. I think, I think the same thing is happening when like a happy, friendly, intelligent, maybe somewhat awkward person A horror fan, let's say. They're happy, they're friendly, they're smart, they're sensitive, and they spend their whole day, let's say they're a school teacher, and they spend their whole day smiling and performing an optimism about the world that they know is contrived. Because they look at the news every day and they know that although there's a lot to be like, scared of and sad about, they also know that it is unbecoming and really not socially useful to anyone if you just go around all day demonstrating and, like, manifesting that perfectly legitimate sadness and fear about the larger world. I think that the smart sensitive person in that situation, someone who has been forced to hold her head up all day despite a creeping and very legitimate sense of just how terribly brutal the world is and how fragile and and vulnerable we all are. I think that she takes some solace in going to a movie theater where a gigantic man with sharp teeth is wearing human skin on his, well, not his own human, like a mask of human skin and swinging a chainsaw at teenagers while chasing them through the woods. I think that that ridiculous, crazy, violent, depiction of misfortune, it speaks to and it, it mollifies the little part of us that wants to spend the whole day screaming. Also, a little while ago, I said that you know when I was a teenager, I would look at these interviews online with horror filmmakers and I thought they were like the fucking smartest people in town. And I think that the reason I reacted so warmly to it is because This was, I was not good in school, and school was like the metric by which your value, your future was determined, your value as a young person was determined, or so it seemed to me. But anyways, instead of liking my studies, I liked these horror movies, and I liked reading a lot, and, and I liked looking critically at movies. And of course, when you do that kind of thing, everyone, all the adults in your life are saying, grow up, start preparing for your future, start thinking seriously about what you want to do with your life. And yet here I had these fucking role models who took horror seriously, and they saw it as, you know, a battleground for great creative ingenuity, craft, intelligence, satire. Like, I remember taking history classes or, you know, with, with with a sort of sociological bent, Sometimes, And I I just could not get ahead in those classes. I could not wrap my head around the material for some reason. Something about the way that it was presented. I don't know if it was the lecture format or textbooks or what. But then I would go home and, you know, with lots of, you know, conniving, I would manage to watch Dawn of the Dead, which my parents had prohibited. But I would watch this 1970s horror movie, Dawn of the Dead, in which you see a bunch of people, they lock themselves in a shopping mall. And they have to... Protect themselves against these zombies that are wa- that are ambling brainlessly around the shopping mall. So I would watch that, and it was visceral, and it was entertaining, and and it just seemed well made. And then I would go online, and I would and I would read, or I would watch, or listen to some very astute person giving a breakdown of how *Dawn of the Dead* is actually a substantive and intelligent satire of. American consumer culture. And also, in order to elaborate on the ways in which it is a clever satire, let's talk about the Reagan 80s and let's talk about where America was just after Vietnam and and post-Watergate and how they had lost all their faith in government. And so, like, by merit of having these, these talking heads in the culture who were willing to take horror seriously and speak about it as, like, a thing with dimension, it became this shoehorn for me to sort of understand the culture and 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 also to kind of understand my country in a way that school just wouldn't let me. I like it, you know it was inviting me to by giving me the fucking textbook and sitting me in the class. But that just wasn't getting it through to me. And so what I would like to do with a bookie conversation is to take horror seriously and to grant it the dignity that. These other people granted it when I was watching their shit as a teenager and, and, you know, it made me feel a little bit less like the sort of, what I think is the sort of naturally lonesome sensitive person who, somewhat ironically, is drawn to this largely horrific genre of entertainment. Anyway, as a purely self-interested, free-roaming kind of stream of consciousness exploration of my own fascination with horror movies. I will be having a bookie conversations with myself every other episode in the month of October. They will be shot from the hip. I will probably have a drink or get a little high when I record them. They will be fairly unpolished, so I'm just giving you this warning out the gate. Anyways, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.